0: Turn thou away thy false dark eyes, nor gaze upon my face. Great love I bore thee, now great hate sits grimly in its place. All changes pass me like a dream, I neither sing nor pray. And thou art like the poisonous tree that stole my life away.
1: A bonfire rages in the dead of night. The shadows of three figures bounce off the gravestones in Highgate Cemetery, London. The doctor, the lawyer, the agent. Each presides, perhaps a handkerchief to the face, as the coffin is opened and in the firelight a figure is exhumed. The digger searches amongst the hair of the corpse to retrieve a worm-ridden, saturated collection of papers. The agent would describe the figure in the ground perfectly preserved, and her hair had continued to grow, the curls filling the wooden box as red as ever, glinting in the moonlight. She'd been laid to rest seven years beforehand, and it would not come to light until many years later that Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle had been exhumed that night for the book of unfinished poems about which her once glowing red curls had been wrapped. The mythic image of the supernatural figure, vivid beyond death, befit the legacy of Dante, Gabrielle Rossetti's wife and muse. In a way, death was the ultimate canonisation of an iconic pre-Raphaelite model. But from beyond the grave, Siddal's power over the artist would prove to be stronger than ever. I'm Ewan Bremner, and you're listening to Reflections, Art, Life and Love from the National Galleries of Scotland. In this episode, we look at how artistic partnerships can transcend space, time and even life to bring us some of the most powerful works of art in history. Francis Fowle told us more about Rossetti's painting, "Better Beatrix. He made several versions of this work and the first was completed in 1870, eight years after Siddal's death.
2: I'm Francis Fowle and I'm a professor of 19th century art at the University of Edinburgh and senior curator at the National Galleries of Scotland. There's a lot of symbolism in the painting and, and it tells you a lot about his interest in Dante and in La Vita Nuova, which he actually translated. La Vita Nuova was a medieval text and Rossetti translated it and reinterpreted it for a 19th century audience he was known as Dante Gabriele Rossetti, wasn't actually christened Dante Gabriel; he was christened Gabriel. He then took on that kind of persona and he translated not only Dante's works but also works of other Italian scholars. He has this kind of academic approach to the subject but also a very personal approach to. I think he interprets it in, in terms of his own life and his love for or fascination with Elizabeth Siddle. And Dante had his own sort of fixation with with Beatrice. You can see the city of Florence behind, Dante himself in the background on the right, and then the figure of, this is supposed to be the figure of love on the left-hand side, the angel on the left-hand side. It is a symbol of, of death as well as spiritual ex- ecstasy. He portrays Beatrice as Elizabeth, which he was already dead when he completed this picture, and you've also got this symbol of the the dove. He referred to her affectionately as dove, but it's also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And she has her mouth, lips slightly parted, and she notice the, um, the way that she holds her hands. It's as if she's waiting to receive communion. The dove is coming down and is about to drop this poppy into her hands. Well, Elizabeth Siddle died from an overdose of laudanum, against a reference to that and to this kind of tragic death. He used her as his inspiration even after death. The fact that when she died and he was very keen to bury his poetry with... or his most recent poetry with her is further evidence of his his passion for her. You have to remember that she came from quite a a relatively humble background in comparison to his family. Um, his sister, Christina, was a successful poet He himself. Is, it was a very intellectual academic family. His parents disapproved of their liaison... She would have benefited from being welcomed into that interesting artistic circle. I imagine. I imagine she would have found it quite stimulating. Uh, he encouraged her to write poetry, to, to to draw and paint, and and actually supported her. It was obviously difficult their relationship, and she was in an awkward position. You know, in those days, it would have been expected that you married, that you didn't live in sin, as it were. She was not necessarily a feisty twenty first century woman. She was a you know woman of her time. And so she would have had to make do with with the situation that she found herself in. I imagine, because of her very attractive features, she became this the Pre-Raphaelite muse, and she she, she was a model most famously for Millais' Ophelia, uh, which again, of course, is a, a, a symbol of death. I mean, it's not even a symbol of death; it shows someone who's who's dead. But interestingly, with her eyes open, as she floats down the river. So, as uh, she posed for Davor, also for Ford Maddox Brown. Both Ford, Madox Brown and Rossetti supported her, as did John Ruskin, the, the famous critic of the time, um, who actually gave her a stipend. So that's an indication that he re- really respected her as a painter.
1: Lucinda Huxley wrote a biography of Elizabeth Siddle and thinks her journey as an artist's model, and then as an artist, was part of her own self-narrative, a tragic one wrapped up in that of Rossetti's,
3: I'm Lucinda Hawksley, Lizzie Siddle's biographer, and we're sitting in the rain outside the British Library in London. I think she's one of those figures who just really speaks to you and everybody thinks that if they'd been her friend, they could have saved her. One of the fascinating things is that Lizzie herself kind of lied about her own childhood quite a lot. She liked to build up this idea that she'd grown up in a slum. She didn't grow up in a slum. She grew up in a kind of working class home Uh, on the old Kent Road in the East End of London, but she didn't grow up in anything like the poverty that she made it out to be. Her father was was a working man. He was a cutler originally from Sheffield and they didn't grow up in the kind of misery that she wanted people to think later. It's as if she romanticized her kind of leap into the middle classes and her role as artist model. It's very strange. Most people in Victorian Britain were doing the complete opposite, trying to manufacture a much more upper-class background. I think she saw herself as a kind of figure in a tragic kind of romance, really, a, a kind of tragic heroine. Dante Rossetti was extremely unfaithful to her early on in their relationship, and sadly, that meant that she never trusted him later on. And when she committed suicide, it seems that she believed, although he'd gone to work that evening, he genuinely was at work teaching art at the working men's college, that she thought that he was out with another woman. I believe it was suicide. Um, there was a note that she left pinned to her nightgown. Now, when Rossetti came back, he removed the note. He didn't know what to do with it. He called the doctors. Nobody wanted it to be known that it was a suicide. Uh, suicide was a deep shame for both families. This would have blighted the lives of the Rossetti and the Siddle families. It also would have meant that Lizzie couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, and she was a strong Christian, so this would have been awful for all of them.
1: Siddle's death may have been a significant event in Rossetti's creative and artistic output, but what do we know of her own work in Genesis as an artist?
3: Now, people often say, oh, it's ridiculous that people say that Lizzie Siddle was this great artist, you know, her work is very naive, it's very crude. When you consider that she had only been drawing, let alone painting, for just a few years. The work that she achieved, I think, is really remarkable. She was making experiments into oil paintings. Her drawings were very accomplished, very much in the style of Rossetti, not surprisingly as he was her first and and only really teacher until she ended their relationship and went off to art school in Sheffield. Rossetti, I think, wanted her to paint because it was a big part of his life, but also because it was something they could do together and it was an excuse for him to spend as much time on his own with her as possible when John Ruskin saw her work he described her as a genius which is I think stretching the point but I can see what he felt was that she was quite ahead of her time as a woman who was educating herself in art a lot of her work is kind of interestingly really looking ahead although she wouldn't have known that obviously to the kind of work that people like Bonard and other artists in france would be doing some years later it's really quite interesting the way she gets her her painting techniques these very kind of loose brush strokes um, perhaps this was just that she hadn't perfected her style but it really can be seen as quite visionary in some ways possibly it was because ruskin was just so desperate to get Rossetti to work that he felt if he championed lizzie that would give Rossetti a reason to keep in in with Ruskin but I do think that he also saw something in her he was fascinated by Lizzie Ruskin called her the countess it was uh, a nickname that he gave her because he said that she she spoke and walked talked and looked like a woman of of a much higher class than he knew her social class to be he said that meeting her no one would ever know where she came from. They would always be bemused as to which class did she fall into. It was almost as if she was classless. She could just talk to anybody, which was a very strange concept in the 19th century. He offered Lizzie £150 a year to continue her art. Now, when she'd been working as a milliner's assistant, she'd earned £24 a year. So that's an extraordinary six, over six times her salary. And the only stipulation was that she would work on her art. She didn't even need to produce anything. That anything she did produce, he would then have the first refusal on, so he could buy it if he wanted to. It was an absolutely amazing bit of financial freedom for a woman in the mid-19th century.
1: Narratives around the life of Siddal often display her in her functions for Rossetti's career and her status as his muse after death. But does that discredit her own autonomy and impact on the men amongst which she mixed? Lucy explained how Siddal explored herself independently, giving a far less passive picture of Rossetti's most powerful partnership.
3: There's a very interesting aspect of looking at Lizzie Siddle just through the eyes of men and the men that she knew. She moved in this very interesting, bohemian, pre-Raphaelite art world. The pre-Raphaelite brotherhood, as its name suggests, was seven young men. There were, of course, many pre-Raphaelite female artists, but in the immediate group that Lizzie was in, those women were models. All of them defined by the male gaze, the male paintbrush the image that men wanted to portray of women on canvas. And many of them had, although they wouldn't have called it this, the kind of Madonna whore imagery of the fallen woman, or the rescued woman, or the, the virtuous woman, all of these different portrayals, the captive wife, the beleaguered wife. And when Ruskin started to pay her this annuity, it was another way of controlling her. When Lizzie Siddle ended her relationship with Dante Rossetti, when he was not marrying her, she knew that he was having affairs with other women, and she left London, she left him completely, and there's about 18 months of her life where it's really, really hard to piece together what she was doing. And She left London, she moved to Sheffield, which is where her father's family was from, and we know that she enrolled in an art school, and what's so interesting about that, I feel, is that she was fed up with being told perhaps rather patronisingly by men, oh yes, yes, you're a great artist, without actually giving her any real kudos. And what she wanted to do was to discover if she really was an artist, if she could produce work in her own right, and if she could be taken seriously without being Rossetti's girlfriend, Millet's model.
1: Sometimes we're keen to embellish tales of artistic partnership for the sake of a good story. But on the other side of the coin, a walk around the collection at National Galleries of Scotland offers vibrant proof that not all artistic partnerships are born of circumspect or unhealthy relationships. In fact, the convention-breaking, culture-shaping nature of some of these partnerships have led to some of our most loved works. We're back in the gallery with Kirsty Meehan next to look at how two fond friends created a valuable artistic legacy.
4: My name's Kirsty Meehan, I'm archivist, working with Modern and Contemporary Art at the National Galleries of Scotland. You have a collection of photographs from the Roland Penrose archive. Roland Penrose was a Ceridus artist and patron and married to the photographer Lee Miller. And these are photographs by Lee Miller of Picasso. They're really sort of intimate in style. Um, They were close friends with Picasso. I think they met around 1937. These photographs date from the 1960s. So you can feel that kind of ease of intimacy between Lee Miller and Picasso here. Picasso is in a very playful mood. We're looking here at a photograph of Picasso cradling a little plaster cast which kind of looks like a baby and playing around with uh, Bruck, an old friend of course, with whom Picasso invented cubism. So these photographs are a kind of wonderfully intimate record of a friendship that went back over decades. We also have some photos here from 1937. So this is the year in which uh, Lee Miller first met Picasso. So they've probably known each other just a month or two by this point, and they all went on holiday together to Mougins, in the south of France, which is just near Antibes. And there are some lovely photographs of them all wearing swimming costumes, just playing around in the sea, um, on the beach, having you know having a cheeky cigarette on the beach. And it's not about work here, it's just about Lee Miller and Picasso and people like Man Ray and Dora Maar um, just having fun together, because they were friends as much as kind of artistic uh, equals. This is later on, these later photos in the 1960s. So, you know, he'd had decades of success. He'd had decades of being photographed. So, I'm, I'm sure it was something that he was aware of, even if it was, wasn't a kind of conscious thing to pose. He knew the camera was, was there. I think in 1937, when they first met and they first went on holiday to Mugin, um, I think Picasso did five portraits of Lee Miller at that time. So, obviously, he was, as many people were, kind of overwhelmed by her beauty, by her, her visual beauty. But you can see in these later photographs that he trusts her enough to enter his working space, his studio. And he obviously respects her enough as a photographer to just let her do her work. So I think perhaps the relationship changes a little bit over the decades from one where she's primarily a model or a kind of object of beauty to one where perhaps he respects her her own practice a little more you know Lee Miller is often talked about as this wonderful beauty but she was such a character as well but I think in terms of the images of her I suspect you know she was a photographer herself she knew what would look good on camera she knew how to pose she knew what light would fall well on her face so I think she really brought that knowledge of photography to her modeling as well in terms of the other way around I think it's quite hard to trace Picasso's impact on her own photography but you can definitely see as a subject he's fascinating to her. There's actually a kind of lovely story that uh, Tony Penrose, who is Lee Miller's son, often tells, where um, he saw a portrait by Picasso of his mother. Uh, it's the first time he'd seen it and he pointed at it and he must have been sort of three or four years old at this point and just said, mama. So he recognised Lee Miller's character, her, you know, her essence, I suppose, in this painting, even though perhaps you look at it, it's quite challenging, it's not an easy kind of portrait, perhaps. It's not an obvious portrait. But he obviously saw that kind of central part of his mother is conveyed in this painting by Picasso so it's a lovely story
1: (laughs) even the most complicated relationships can lead to inspiration in the art world but a good story can sometimes overshadow the truth of the matter Julian Bell is an artist living in Sussex his passion for Vincent van Gogh led him to write a biography of the artist he tells us more about the famous and explosive friendship between the artist and his contemporary Paul Gauguin
0: Vincent meets Gauguin when Vincent is trying to run an exhibition for a large amount of not very well-known painters in the north of Paris. Vincent is a desperately earnest and impassioned character without any very high opinion of himself. On the other hand, Gauguin goes around the world on chutzpah, uh, uh, on um, an arrogant and swaggering demeanor. After meeting Gauguin, Vincent thinks, wow, that's a really exciting guy. Quite shortly after that, Vincent is off on his train to Arles, and he has this general idea that he might form a little artist's colony. When he eventually finds a small property he can rent, the Yellow House, this place on the outskirts of Arles near the railway station, he starts to think, who can he get there? Gauguin is pretty iffy about it, and he says, well, I don't know, I don't know. And I think Gauguin is quite wary of going down and joining this quite weird Dutchman down in a town he's never been to. There's about six months of correspondence before eventually, in the October of, Gauguin joins Vincent, who's come in February uh, to Arles. So he persuades a very willing Vin- Vincent that art ought to be all about ideas and what's in your head, not all this stuff outside the material world. The material world is so base, you know. And Vincent tries to swing round this, and he, d- he does not about the weirdest picture of his life, it's a kind of dream picture. It's, about, it's sort of feeble. It's, it, looks, it looks a bit like you know someone had, had a bad dream of a, a, of a Japanese uh, print and then combined it with some memories of being back in Holland a long time ago. Gauguin, he's coasting a bit. He's, he's, he's picking up on old subjects. He's trying to find his feet. The only really interesting painting he does is a painting of Vincent himself sitting at his, at his easel. And Gauguin's probably thinking, what the hell am I doing here with this rather crazy guy who I'm quite fond of? But Vincent's brother, the art dealer, is selling Gauguin's pictures, and Gauguin wants to keep in with the, the art dealer because there's money in it. So it becomes rather a tortuous dynamic within a few weeks. The more that Vincent senses... Gauguin is getting itchy feet, the more he gets edgy. And after Gauguin has painted this picture of Vincent painting his sunflowers, Gauguin really loves painting oh, Vincent's sunflowers, by the way. He says he, he says these pictures which he's done to decorate the yellow house, the house in Elsa, are, are Vincent's real forte and real, a real innovation. Vincent says, That's that painting you've done of me, Gauguin, that's me. But it's it's gone mad. You're saying I'm a madman, and shortly after that he lobs he lobs a glass of absinthe in the cafe. Vincent accuses Gauguin of wanting to betray him, and Gauguin thinks this is getting really dodgy. I'm going to go and spend the night somewhere else because I've seen this guy standing over me at, the, at night in bed. What's he what's he going to do? Is he going to go wild? So. Gauguin goes off and spends the night in a hotel or oh, and um, that is the night that Vincent succumbs to complete fit and mutilates himself cuts his ear off um, so that when Gauguin wakes up the next morning the, there's a cop saying can you come and see <laughs> see what's happened to your friend uh, and Gauguin having alert immediately alerted Theo back in Paris who gets the next train down and comes made sure there's a doctor to look after the the, the poor guy at the hospital. He's, he's been hospitalised. Get the next train back to Paris, and that's the last time that Vincent and Gauguin actually see one another. And what's, what's extraordinary sequel to that is that um, after that, they resume a very civil correspondence. Despite this horrifying episode, Until Vincent's suicide in July 1890, Gauguin spoke to many aspects of Vincent's character and he found in Gauguin possibilities um, that were kind of intrinsic to himself, they were kind of within himself.
1: From outrageous myths to ghoulish dependency, all the way through to healthy modern-day partnerships, hopefully this episode has got you thinking about the ways we influence each other in artistic endeavours. You can hear about the powerful partnership between Robert McBride and Robert Cahoon in our bonus episode next time. I'm Ewan Bremner, and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. You can find out more about the artists and artworks featured at nationalgalleries.org. And if this show's got you thinking, tell a friend about it, share it on your social media and subscribe. I'll be back next time.